Welcome to the Prioritizing Prevention Translating Science to Practice podcast. Our goal is to prioritize prevention conversations that matter. Our topic for today is Black Youth and Young Adult Suicide Prevention with special guest Brandon J. Johnson. Now here's our host, Holly Raffle. Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion podcast, Prioritizing Prevention, Translating Science to Practice. Before we get started with today's podcast, I want to provide our listening audience with a content warning. The content of today's discussion is related to themes of suicide and self-harm. These topics may be emotionally challenging for some listeners. The 988 Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress, prevention and crisis resources for you or your loved ones, and best practices for professionals in the United States. Call or text the 988 Lifeline anytime. If you or someone you care about are not experiencing a crisis and you would just like more general information about the 988 Lifeline, please check the show notes or Google 988 Lifeline. Hi, I'm Holly Raffle, the faculty director of the center, and I am grateful to welcome my guest, Brandon Johnson, to the show. Brandon is the chief of the Suicide Prevention Branch at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA, as we say in acronym world, which is part of the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Before that, Brandon served as the government project officer for the Suicide Prevention Resource Center and the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. On today's show, I'll be sharing a conversation with Brandon on Black youth and young adult suicide prevention. Brandon, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited uh, for the conversation today. Well, you're nearly minted in your role as chief of the suicide prevention branch. But before that, you spent nearly seven years with the branch as a public health advisor. You have worked on some of the most widely recognized suicide prevention initiatives in the country, particularly for Black youth. So what drew you to pursue a career in public behavioral health? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's really, for me, it started with childhood, honestly. So I am born and raised uh, from, from Baltimore City. Um, and, you know, in, in childhood, I think growing up in really many major metropolitan cities, you kind of see um, you're exposed to a lot of different things, see a lot of different things that happen within your community. Um, and one of the things in particular that always struck me was this idea of um, experiencing trauma. So you have family and friends that experience things and, and see things and that, that could be traumatic. And so for that, it really um, lit a fire in me to kind of want to help from that standpoint and to, to talk about and have those conversations. There just weren't many conversations about it. It was happening, you could see those things happening and having an impact on folks, but not necessarily, you know, talking through the solutions through, um, you know, how to help, how to be supportive, like all of those things um, are something that I think we could do more of. And so as I kind of grew up, I, I got more, you know, you know, exposed to the mental health work. And when I went to, to undergrad, uh, there was, you know, I was doing a, a research project around um, mental health and exposure to to violence, uh, you know, during that time. And so um, someone had asked me, a professor said, you know, have you heard about, you know, public health? And I was like, yeah, but, you know, didn't know as much about it. And so um, got some more information and ended up pursuing a master's in health science degree um, 
you know, from, from Johns Hopkins and, and really getting into this space. And um, suicide prevention, I wanted to be in violence prevention and suicide prevention being a piece of that. And once I, I kind of got more educated in suicide prevention and, what, and um, the fact that it was growing, growing in different populations, different communities, um, it really just kind of um, stuck with me. And so um, next month, I think I would have been in the field total for, for about 10 years at, at this point. So um, definitely quite the journey. Didn't expect it to go this route, but um, I'm so glad that I'm in this space. Wow, thank you. And how are you taking your personal life experience, your educational experience, and putting that to use in your role at SAMHSA? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of that really comes from um, thinking through um, how can I best represent individuals, communities, and people um, who don't get the opportunity to sit at the tables that I sit at? Um, you know, how do I take you know, people's, you know, ideas and, and experiences uh, where, you know, they, they want to amplify it, right? They want to, um, to, to be able to come up and find solutions and to be sure to do that and represent that um, in, the, in the work that I do. And again, like I said, experiencing these things um, and seeing people experience things within um, our community, um, you know, mental health challenges, uh, not being able to find uh, mental health resources, uh, you know, nonprofits were trying to like get into the community and do this work and um, having those challenges. And so seeing the social determinants of health really impacting people um, day in and day out from a systemic level, taking those experiences and things that I've seen, um, really trying to come up with solutions and then pull back and include individuals and communities that don't talk about this um, as much as others. Um, and having them at the table when it comes to helping to frame things and um, help with decision making and, and those pieces as well. So like what I call, you know, people inside the agency know I say like good public health work. Right. So just like, you know, going and bringing, um, you know, those perspectives with me, I think is an important piece of uh, moving these initiatives forward. I think so. Oh, I love that you know, term good public health work. And so how have you taken your experience, right, in your education, but now you have 10 years of experience in the system itself. Mm -hmm. um, how have you grown throughout your journey as a behavioral health professional? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think with these experiences, one of the things that um, I always joke about is that um, I've been government through and through. I started at local government with the state and then went to federal. Um, and so in, in those experiences, I think understanding how each of those levels work and work best, uh, where there are mechanisms for change and impact, um, and building that in, in each perspective. So going to the local level, understanding communities at the ground level, uh, towns and systems and things like that, uh, local government, how that works and plays into things, how local politics impact individuals' health. And then taking that with me to the state level and building relationships at the local level as we build out state initiatives. I was Maryland's director of suicide and violence prevention before going to the feds um, and, and building that local perspective in there and hearing from the local communities. And then at the federal level, taking both of those and applying that to the work um, by understanding, you know, how those systems work at that level. Um, and I think um, for me, it's understanding where the barriers are. I think a lot of times it's it's easy to sit and think, 
you know, well, why if, it, if this is an issue in the community, why don't they just do X, Y, and Z to, to solve it? And I think my, a part of my growth is understanding that there's so many things that can prevent a community, a system, a town from, you know, engaging and, and working to change these things. And so for me, my commitment uh, in my growth is making sure that folks around me are educated in those barriers and helping to find solutions, helping to find ways to um, better improve systems and communities um, as as a partner, uh, more so than, you know, hey, we're, we sit here, we have the answers, just do this thing, implement this piece and all will be well. But helping to understand where those barriers are and work to find solutions, I think is uh, a big piece of my growth in the in the field. When you when you first get in, you're just like, yeah, let's solve all the problems, um, and then you understand that it's it's so layered, so multifaceted, and so um, building collaborations and relationship building is probably one of the things that I have learned can be more impactful than anything. Um, is connecting people to the right people at the right time with the right resources. It's so funny that you ended your answer with the word layers, because as you were talking, I was thinking about all the layers of the system itself, right, from local, state to federal. And then each community really has its own cultural layers. Um, you know, it has its own priority population, the people who live there, their layers as well. So that was the word that came to my mind. And all of this layering has really well positioned you to do an important body of work that I know you've been tasked with leading, and that's updating the national strategy for suicide prevention. And this is a very vast strategy, and it's updated every decade. And part of that process, from my understanding, pulls in stakeholders from a variety of levels. I am so curious about this work, and I know our listeners will be too. So I might linger on these questions for a little bit. Um, no problem. Tell us a little bit first about, um, you know, what is the purpose of the strategy and how long it's been around? So if you could just kind of level set for our listeners about the strategy. Absolutely. So the first strategy, National Strategy for Suicide Prevention, came about in 2002. And so this was the initial strategy to really give the field um, an idea around, you know, how to address suicide prevention, uh, what pieces of it are, are necessary to support um, communities, to support systems, um, and to support populations. And so um, with that, the most recent one that has been released came out in 2012. Um, the National Strategy for Suicide Prevention was a collaborative effort between government, the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, which includes like a public-private partnership to end um, suicide prevention, the Surgeon General's office was involved with it um, and, and outside stakeholders and groups really to develop um, what ways can we impact suicide prevention. Um, so it consisted of a number of strategic directions um, to move suicide prevention uh, forward and a number of objectives. Um, the strategy included uh, data. It included, you know, on top of the goals and objectives. Um, risk factors for suicide, warning, warning signs, risk and protective factors, um, and went into what government agencies were doing. And it also included some call-out boxes around what communities can do, what um, you know, different systems such as uh, healthcare, emergency departments, um, law enforcement, what those um, folks could do as well. So it really built this, uh, this picture of around how we can all get involved in, in suicide prevention. And so um, that has been around, like you said, since since 2012. And so 
2024, we're looking to um, to update that, um, to revise the goals and in uh, the objectives and the strategic directions around this. And we have a couple new areas of focus uh, for this one that we're working on that I can speak to as well. Absolutely. So, you know, in my practice, um, public health practice and prevention practice, I always think if, if a community can answer yes to three questions, can I do it? Will it work? Is it worth it? They're more likely to be able to update or uptake any of the frameworks or ideas um, that are being asked of them. So let's go to that question, you know, is it worth it? Why is this national strategy for suicide prevention so important and why is it worth it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Really, um, for us, is worth it because suicide continues to increase um, in in this country. Unfortunately, we see an uh, an additional increase um, of deaths by suicide from CDC twenty twenty one preliminary data, which is the most recent data that we that we have in the complete picture that we have. Um, so it's worth it in in that sense, um, even though any life lost to suicide um, is impactful and is one too many. Um, I think in in addition to that, suicide trends have shifted um, significantly uh, where it's impacting different populations that at one point in the field were thought to be protected you know, to another number of mechanisms from suicide, suicidal ideation and attempt. And so we're seeing increases in Black youth suicide, Hispanic youth suicide, um, LGBTQ uh, plus individuals. Um, as well, we saw an increase in older adults um, in the new data that was released um, from from 2021. We saw a significant increase in deaths by suicide um, from older adults, and it continues to be a rate that's too high within our veteran and military populations as well. Um, so this is something that impacts um, so many different um, areas, populations, um, and regions. It's definitely a thing that um, the suicide rate in rural communities and frontier communities um, American Indian Alaska Native communities is still way too high. And so this is this is really worth it to get everyone um, on one accord with one path that we can use, um, you know, a path that consists of many different paths because we have a number of goals and objectives in it uh, where people can find um, a place where they can get engaged with it. I, I talk a lot about um, lane work. Suicide prevention is too big of an issue that any one of us, any one agency can do it on our own. And so if people can look at the strategy, look at the goals and the objectives and see where um, they may be able to have impact um, is, is an important piece of this as well. Um, I'll talk through two, one important difference from this strategy to previous ones is that this one would include a federal action plan. Um, so our federal agencies will be putting forward some actions that they um, are looking to take to move the strategy forward as like a, you know, this is our example. You can see us, this is how we're looking at it. And this is what we're committing to do. Um, and that action strategy will, um, action plan will be for three years to give us the option of, you know, taking some things out that we've done, adding some new actions in, um, that gives us the ability to be flexible over these next 10 years that the strategy lives. Um, but this is, um, really something that we see everyone getting involved in, um, being able to move forward and being able to um, really have some impact within their their particular priorities. But um, this is certainly an important step, I think, for, um, for suicide prevention. 
Thank you so much, Brandon. And you really answered not only is it worth it because the document talks about so many different populations that everybody can really see themselves in the document. And we know, like you said, you know, one death by suicide is one death too many. And so I think the value is definitely there. And also talking about um, the call out boxes, the recommendations, um, the ways that folks can just honestly say this suicide is a bigger issue, right? We need everybody to be involved in their own specific uh you know, content area, whatever that may be, that really helps with can we do it, right? Because it's not something that one group can be tasked to. So will it work? How does the strategy address that? Like, you know, will will it work if we all fall in line with this national strategy? Yeah, so it's it's something that, that we have been considering um, and we wanted to use the best available data and information to inform uh, the the goals and and objectives within the part of the strategy. Um, you mentioned before about uh, you know just different uh, places where we've gotten feedback on this. Um, I definitely want to make sure this is not just uh, something that one agency is looking at and created and saying like yes, let's have the whole field do this. Um, this is really an all of government strategy. I think the important thing to mention too um, is that uh, the White House is behind this and supporting this initiative. Um, in this updated strategy, which which always helps. Um, there are a number of uh, federal agencies uh, within our interagency work group that is working to help develop these goals and objectives. Um, so we work with a number of agencies. So, you know, VA, DOD, HRSA, CDC, NIMH. Um, there's just so many people. And again, I can keep going, but there's so many agencies at the table um, before we we really got started, we did listening sessions with experts from the field, experts in uh, health equity. Um, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center has a lived experience advisory committee um, that consists of individuals with suicide center lived experience um, to help guide this. We even did a listening session with youth and young adults, which was amazing. I can't talk enough about um, how how wonderful they were in, in the things that they wanted to see from this. So we were ensuring that we're uh, including uh, voices, people from different perspectives, individuals with different expertise um, to really drive this forward. And we also wanted to make sure that we were um, enhancing pieces of this strategy that's different from 2012. Um, 2012, we probably hate to say it, but it was a while ago, right? And so with that, there have been changes and updates to the field. And we wanted to make sure that this um, document, which isn't completed, I don't want to talk about it as if it's if it's finalized, we're still working. Um, but, but with that, our intention and focus is, um, one, we really wanted to have a renewed focus on crisis systems and crisis services. Um, 98 did not exist when uh, the 2012 strategy uh, was created. There have been so many, uh, you know, different advancements there. Um, the need for improved uh, health equity work in suicide prevention is incredibly important now for some of the changes that I talked about in, in the data. It's important for us to address that. So we, we increase our emphasis there. Uh, the intersection of suicide and substance use um, is, is, is an important one as well. So we wanted to make sure that there's a renewed focus there. Um, and young people in the technology, even beyond social media, social media is a piece of it. Um, but youth and technology, how they engage with technology, what that brings emotionally, you know, how we can, you know, use technology as a benefit to young people because that's where they are. That's where they where they exist. 
Um, and, and so wanting to ensure that we're taking the opportunity to be intentional, um, to be um, inclusive of, of changes that need to happen in the field. Um, and so with that and with the opportunity to um, cover each of those things, um, you know, we definitely believe that this will have impact. Thank you so much for your leadership and your efforts in this space. Um, I'm looking so forward to seeing the document when it's finally been released. And it sounds like from this conversation, I can tell that that all of the groups involved have really put out, like, can we do it? Will it work? And is it worth it at the core? And those are things that help motivate. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And we're looking forward, anticipating um, a March 2024 release uh, of the strategy. So um, we're moving forward towards that goal and, and working very literally nonstop but <laughs> ensuring that we can that we can that a lot of that this release to the field. I can only imagine. Uh, well now I'm going to take us back to December of 2019 when the Congressional Black Caucus's emergency task force on black youth suicide and mental health led by New Jersey representative uh, Bonnie Watson Coleman was released. Uh, a report was released titled Ring the Alarm, the Crisis of Black Youth Suicide in America that outlined the state of Black youth mental health and detailed policy recommendations for consideration by Congress. And I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know that we will have a link to that report in the show notes. Up in that report and in other research, the number of Black children and teenagers dying by suicide is increasing at a faster rate than any other racial or ethnic group. And there are striking disparities between suicide deaths among Black and white youth. Black children under the age of 13 are twice as likely to die from suicide as their white peers. Two decades ago, this wasn't the case. Knowing the depth and scope of the crisis facing Black youth, how would we get to the crisis point that we're seeing today? Yeah, I, mean, I think that there's a number of reasons for that. One, I, I alluded to it a little earlier, but, you know, in, in the field, because of, you know, consistently lower rates, um, you know, it was thought that Black youth uh, might have been protected um, against uh, suicidal ideation attempt in, in death data. Um, I think there's also just hasn't been enough uh, focus with this population in suicide prevention um, and also not as much research um, into the population in, in terms of um, suicide rate. And so I, I definitely want to honor and um, acknowledge some uh, researchers and scholars in the field who have been dedicated to this work long before it was getting the attention that it is now. Uh, the Dr. Michael Lindsay's, the Sean Joes, the um, Sherry Molox, the Alfred Breland Nobles, who've really uh, you know, been leading and others, and I'm sure I'm forgetting, but uh, that have been leading in this space and saying that this was something that was increasing. Uh, but because the numbers and rates were relatively low, it was kind of, you know, not a priority for um, for, for folks in the, in, in the field. And so uh, at this point, I think, again, when you see things and trends start to creep up, if they're not addressed specifically, if the population isn't of focus and isn't targeted, uh, what happens is, is that Unfortunately, it can continue uh, to grow, um, and because of the the lack of you know research and things into um, you know evidence based practices or practice based evidence to support um, and reduce suicidal ideation and deaths within this population, um, it's harder now when things go up to like you know it's it's puts us puts us in a different situation to have resources to address it, and so I think some of those things have have not helped 
this situation, I'll put it that way. Um, but I think now we're at a point where um, individuals, communities, organizations, agencies are tapped into what's happening. Um, and there's been, again, many of it being led by the Congressional Black Caucus's report um, have really kind of um, shone a light on how we can better address this issue. Thank you so much. And so much of that is, you know, readiness, right? Are we, are we ready to listen and building that readiness and that report really seemed to do that uh, for us. Um, how does racial identity impact the experiences of Black youth and young adults facing suicidal thoughts or behaviors? Yeah, so I, I think it's, um, you know, a little less about how um, the youth themselves kind of see their own racial identity and how others react to it, um, you know, kind of outside of outside of that. So, um, you know, because race isn't a risk factor, it's the experiences because of one's race that really impacts um, outcomes for, for individuals. So we know as a protective factor, uh, being connected to, um, you know, your culture and your identity and having that identity and sense of purpose can definitely be protective of suicidal ideation and attempts. But what we know from from risk factors and in that work is that um, being exposed to racism and discrimination at an early age can definitely impact um, a young person's um, suicidal ideation and suicide attempts um, for Black youth uh, in particular. And we know that Black youth are disproportionately impacted by racial trauma compared to other racial ethnic groups. So definitely some, some things that um, impact young people and, and how they're perceived in, in spaces. You know, we talk about these social determinants of health. Uh, we look at, you know, additional data. So if we look at education data, we see that Black youth are more likely to be suspended and expelled from school all the way down to pre-K. Um, I have two kids. I don't know what a young person could be doing that deserves to be expelled from, from pre-K. Um, and, and the fact that those rates are significantly different um, and that disparity exists, again, what does that say to a young person, you know, in those things? And we talk about, um, you know, there's research around young Black youth being, um, you know, this issue of adultification, right? That, you know, young Black boys are seen as more likely to engage in criminal behavior and Black girls are more likely to be uh, overly sexualized and incriminalized by others and, and adults that they interact with. And these things have, um, you know, they have repercussions, they have outcomes, it changes how a young person can see themselves um, and the things that they are, um, that, that they're up against as, as well. It can impact education, um, self-esteem, self-awareness, a sense of purpose, um, and create, thus create hopelessness and thus uh, build these things that are risk factors for suicidal ideation attempts. So it's definitely, again, there's layers is, is multifaceted, but these are some of the things that we know from, from work in the field. Thank you so much. And I think it bears repeating that race in and of itself is not a risk factor. It's the experiences that one, um, that one has because of their race that can be either risk or protective factors. And I think that bears repeating for our listeners here. And as you discussed, Black youth and young adults face well-documented inequities in school and when receiving care. And these challenges are systemic, but their negative impacts are deeply personal to the youth, um, young people, and the families who support them and experience these. These inequities can manifest themselves in many ways. 
So what are the risk factors caused by these inequities that our listening audience should be focused on? Yeah. And so I, I went through a couple of them, um, but definitely um, being aware of exposure to um, racism and discrimination is is definitely an, an, an important risk factor and one that we should all um, really be aware of. Um, you know, we get and hear people say that like young people aren't exposed to racism or they don't know what it is. And that's not true. Um, and they do. And it has long lasting um, effects. Um, definitely um, substance use is, is another one. Uh, you know, our young people being exposed to to substances and things and using those um, to cope with with those hopeless, hopelessness um, and those feelings that they may experience, um, you know, is definitely one to to look out for uh, as well. Um, also, you know, definitely having other young people around them who, um, you know, who they lose to, you know, whether it be violent, whether it be to suicide, um, can definitely um, uh, increase risk um, as well. Like I said, our young people are exposed to to so much. And, and even when we talked about um, Black youth and their experiences during um, the earlier days of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that Black youth experienced disproportionate rates of grief and loss um, in community and those that impacted their their daily, um, you know, their daily lives. And so, uh, you know, managing and dealing with um, grief and loss, I think, is um, is another one as well. But really, you know, understanding how to uh, help our young people with, you know, with self-esteem, with coping skills. Um, and, and the other one, the other big one um, is traumatic life events. Um, things happen, right? There, there are things happening, things that happen, um, you know, to you or systemically that our young people um, experience. When we look at national violent death reporting system data um, from the CDC and look at um, Black youth in particular and compare it to um, their white counterparts between the ages of 10 to 17, um, is that um, a traumatic event within uh, the two preceding weeks of a death by suicide was disproportionately um, a precipitating factor uh, for Black youth between the ages of 10 to 17. And so having those supports and, and, and again, wrapping our, our supports around young people during grief and loss, during, you know, if they get suspended or expelled, if there's um, an eviction, like I said, a loss of a loved one, um, you know, even a, a community traumatic event, um, you know, we've seen the impact of, um, you know, negative outcomes with law enforcement and other things. Um, but they're definitely uh, risk factors there um, as well. So things to kind of be mindful of with our young people. Thank you so much, Brandon. And I know you peppered some of the strategies and areas where behavioral health professionals and our listeners can make a difference. But could you just please highlight a couple um, specific opportunities that uh, behavioral health professionals can do um, to make a difference in the lives of Black youth and young adults when they're faced with the risk factors that you outline? Absolutely. Cultural humility is a big one and one that I, I speak about a lot. Um, you know, kind of shifting from cultural competence, which really says, you know, I can, you know, ace a test on your culture or like I know this certain amount of things. So like I'm proficient there. Um, it's shifting to more of a mindset around cultural humility that says I'm never going to know everything about your culture and, and that's fine. But what I want to do is understand how it impacts you 
what it means to you and how can we engage your, uh, you know, like your culture, your experiences in your healing process? How do we, you know, put this um, together to kind of help you um, reach the, the outcomes that you want? And so just, you know, being um, aware of those things, I think is, um, is incredibly important. Um, you know, helping uh, families to, to navigate the mental health care system and providing resources to let folks know where they can get services, um, you know, for a parent when your, your child is going through, um, you know, going through things, having, uh, you know, mental distress or, you know, maybe exhibiting signs of, of suicide and other things. It's a hard thing to manage um, trying to navigate the mental health care system. You know, it's not easy for us professionals. Like we understand the gaps and the challenges with it um, as well. But building resources and things with, that you can give to um, a family about those resources, um, how to get connected to a mental health professional, what that process is like, um, you know, giving people ideas of other places to look. So, you know, calling your insurance company um, may be a place to go or, you know, calling a, a hospital to see if they have services there as well. If you know, your services um, are booked, I think are important. And also I think for mental health professionals and other behavioral health professionals is really connecting to other community-based organizations uh, within your community that are doing um, some of the social determinative health work. Um, Faith-based um, organizations is, is one, you know, there are a lot of uh, churches and other places, uh, mosques, et cetera, that help to meet those needs that have food pantries and doing, you know, other things, helping folks with transportation, um, going to those places and building relationships to say, hey, if there are people in your community that need help and, and support, that need mental health services, like we're here, you know, show up to health fairs, show up to, you know, back to school nights, like go to those places so people know uh, where you are, because it's hard enough to manage and find those things on your own. If you're there and present and can build that rapport as a trusted place for services within a community, um, there's there's so much that can um, that can happen from there. It can help support um, communities in, in that sense as well. And so I think that's those are some some critical ways to uh, to do that. And then it, and then just engage with parents. Um, it's 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 challenging. And you know I think in suicide prevention we do a lot specifically around adults. We do a lot specifically around youth, but we don't do a ton around parents and caregivers. And so if we can um, engage with them, provide them with resources and also uh, ways to handle a crisis, ways to get connected, where are resources there and how to manage their own mental health and well-being. Again, I'm a parent. Parents is not easy. It's it's a, a challenging thing. Um, and there are so many pieces of it that you have to focus on. So making one aspect of it a little easier can definitely be a big difference in a, in a young person's life. Thank you so much um, for talking about the parenting and caregiver piece. Um, in Ohio, we've been doing a lot of work around SAMHSA's Talk They Hear You program. And uh, what started with underage drinking, it really extends into so much of the behavioral health world, including suicide prevention, um, because we know that that strong parental caregiver relationships are a protective factor. So I really appreciate you um, highlighting that today in our conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just think it's, it's one that, um, you know, we can probably do a little, a little better of because it's a, a tough thing because you're managing, you're responsible for the well-being and mental well-being of, you know, your children. 
But life doesn't stop for you at the same time. There are things that come up. There are traumatic events that come up for you as an adult. A lot of times in families, those traumatic events happen together. Grief happens typically together. Um, you know, financial problems happen together. Like those things happen, you know, not just to your children, but to you as well. So how do you maintain your health and well-being and, and having resources there to help them, but also navigate the system for their children? Oh, Brandon, I could extend this conversation all day, but I know you have a webinar to do this afternoon. And so we're going to have to wind our conversation uh, down. And as we wind down, um, I hope to provide our uh, listeners with one specific call to action. Um, so what is something that our prevention professionals or behavioral health prevention professionals who are tuned in today could do to forward the efforts of SAMHSA Suicide Prevention Branch? Absolutely. Um, so a number of things. Um, I can't just do one. <laughs> there are a number of things. Definitely continue to move forward and, and share 988, um, you know, in, in that resource for, for individuals to call, chat, and text. Um, you know, we're excited to have that. The uptake has been um, amazing. So we definitely want um, as much as you can share that information uh, with folks, um, the better. Again, be present, be connected within community um, is another important one. Um, always check out um, SAMHSA.gov. There's a section on suicide prevention there. Uh, we add resources there and definitely stay connected to the Suicide Prevention Resource Center. That is our technical assistance center that we funded SAMHSA to do suicide prevention. There are a number of resources there. There's a section in our resource library, particularly for clinicians. So definitely check that out. There are a number of resources there around zero suicide training, safety planning, uh, reducing access to lethal means. All of those things are, are there as well. And that's another one I should have mentioned earlier, but reducing access to lethal means is another thing that clinicians can do. And SBRC has a training on that um, on their website. So definitely look into that. Um, and just stay connected to other resources um, that, that we're putting out. We're um, working on uh, resources around Black youth suicide. Um, SAMHSA has a Black youth suicide prevention initiative that I co-lead with Dr. Belina Shaw um, to address this issue. We've also just recently released um, a resource guide called Mental Health Promotion and Suicide Prevention for LGBTQ plus um, IA Two-Spirit Youth. Um, it's a guide for, for professionals, but also family members as well. Um, it's on SBRC's website. You'll see it as soon as you go to their website, sbrc.org. Um, it's there. We definitely want you to share that widely. Um, and we'll be releasing another resource before the end of the month around uh, faith communities um, and youth suicide prevention. So stay tuned um, for, for that. But um, just stay connected to us. Feel free to reach out um, to myself and, and others that you may see from the branch or from the 980 team. Um, we're certainly here to help and want to partner with you. Thank you so much. And, and our listeners who are maybe, you know, driving on their way to work or driving home from work or on a walk uh, to take care of their own self, uh, we'll be sure to put all these links in the show notes for you. And Brandon, this conversation has been really challenging and enlightening for me. And what I really love is how it's okay for both of those things to be true, right? And, Absolutely. And that's, to me, the mark of a good conversation. Uh, now we're going to move on to our lightning round of questions, which are just our last questions that our listeners look forward to, just to get to know you a little better as a person. Sure. You know, when you work with the feds, right, you've got, you've got to have a personal face. <laughs> so my first right. question is this, carrot cake, should it be baked with raisins or without? With, I like it with. <laughs> 
with yeah. radio. And are you an early bird or a night owl? Night owl, a hundred percent. I'm not an early morning person. And in this new role, I have to be up early and late. So <laughs> it's a lot. It's a challenge. Uh, absolutely. And this is a question I ask every single guest and our listeners have been waiting for this. So you're reaching into that M&M dish. Are you looking for plain or peanut? Plain, but like from the refrigerator. Full cola. So like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but plain from the refrigerator. I like peanuts too, but plain from the refrigerator afterwards. Everyone has their own M&M preference. This has been a good question, but this is the first time I've heard M&Ms from the fridge. Oh, well, thank you, Brandon, for sharing your time and your experience with us here in Ohio. And importantly, thank you for your dedication to the people of the United States and for your public service. To our listeners, thank you for listening to the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion podcast, Prioritizing Prevention, Translating Science to Practice. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or set the podcast to automatically download on your favorite channel. To catch all of the latest from the Center of Excellence, follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, X, and Facebook at OHPreventionCOE or visit us at preventioncoe.ohio.gov to sign up for our monthly newsletter. This has been the Prioritizing Prevention Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, and many more. This program is funded by Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And for more information about us, please visit preventioncoe.ohio.gov. Thank you for listening.